You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Genesis 47. We're going to begin with verse 27 and read to the conclusion of the chapter. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning and we ask, O Father, that you would teach us from your word. Father, it is your voice that we desire to hear. It is not the words of men, but it is the word of God that we are gathered here, O Father that we are attentive to. Well, Father, we pray that, Lord, you would be pleased to speak to each of our hearts, O Father, from your word, that not only would you give us understanding of your word this morning, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, O Lord, you would truly open our heart's eyes, our heart's ears, that we would not only come to perceive that which you intend to teach from this passage, but that our wills would be changed, our hearts would be changed, our lives would be changed, and greater fidelity to Christ's likeness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. To get the passage this morning, we have to back up. You know, I, I like to use computer analogies today because all of practical all of us are either on computers or tablets or phones. Probably more of us on phones these days than others. But you know, you can kind of take your fingers and do one of these and kind of blow things up. You know, you got your picture and you blow it up or you can, you know, you zero in, zero out. Uh, that's a good practice to have whenever you're studying Scripture. And to see our text this morning, we really do, in many ways, we need, we, need, we need to step back and then we're going to need to zero in. And if you look at the way our text starts, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt. That's a theme that we've encountered before. And the context of this theme actually goes all the way back in many ways to chapter 45. And I would ask you to turn back to 45. And if you look at verse 1 in chapter 45, there Joseph is dealing with his brothers. His brothers have returned a second time in order to get food. And Joseph is dealing with his brothers. And at this point, Joseph cannot control himself any longer. And if you recall, it's been weeks since we've been here. But if you recall, 
His brothers still don't know who he is. They still don't know who this strange ruler is. They're, they, they're walking before him with great intrepidation. They have no idea who he is. And Joseph finally breaks it to him. He makes everyone leave, which is showing how personal of an issue this is. He asks all the Egyptians and the courtiers and whoever, people of Pharaoh's house, he asks them to leave, to give him room, and then he reveals himself He makes himself known to his brothers. And verse 4, Joseph says to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near to him and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Verse 5, now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me. He sent me before you to preserve life. If you look down to verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. And then he gives these instructions in verse 9. He says, hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. And there I will provide for you. There are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. Now, you see that? See that last phrase in verse 11? So that you do not come to poverty. Now, in verse 16, the report is heard in Pharaoh's house, namely the report that Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh to say to Joseph, listen, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts, go back to the land of Canaan. Verse 18, take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones, for your wives, bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods for the best of all of the land of Egypt is yours. So the sons of Israel, they do just as Joseph has instructed. They gather the wagons up, they gather the goods up, Off they go. Verse 25, they went up out of Egypt. They came to the land of Canaan to their father. They announced to their father that Joseph is still alive. And you'll recall that when we were there, I I made a point to say that, you know, the, 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 the news just stunned, as you can imagine, just stunned uh, Jacob. And um, earlier this morning, we were talking, in fact, talking in in regards to uh, the accident that the Crenshaw family has underwent. And uh, it was said that, you know, things that happen to your children are like the worst. Um, here, this, this, this you know, uh, Jacob has lost his son. And, and in Jacob's estimation, remember, he believes that Joseph was torn by a wild beast, right? Now he's being told that Joseph is alive, and we can only imagine it. We're told in verse 26 that his heart became numb, for he did not really believe them. He was stunned. And it's not as if, as if this is the most admirable of, uh, group here for telling the truth either. Um, so he's stunned, but in verse 27, they tell him all the words of Joseph, and he sees the wagons. You know, he sees the wagons, and he sees all the stuff that was brought up. How else can you explain it? In verse 28, Israel is resolved. That is, Jacob is resolved. He said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. And in chapter 46... He begins this journey. 
We're told he, when he gets down to Beersheba, he stops and he offers sacrifice to, the, to the, the God of his father Isaac. In other words, he stops, he spends time with the Lord, and it's in the midst of this time that the Lord speaks to him. Now, why is this so important? I brought this out uh, weeks ago when we were in this passage. This is going to be a hard move and a hard sell for Jacob to go down to Egypt. Why? Because Jacob is in the promised land, isn't he? He's in the land that his father promised him. That is his heavenly father, but also his earthly father. The promise was made to Abraham, and the promise was reiterated to Isaac, and the promise has been given to Jacob. Now, why should I leave the land of the promise to go to where? To Egypt? Now, Egypt, even in this day, is, it, 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 this, is the, this is the emblem of worldliness. It's the high life, you know? What, what in the world are we going to be going down to, to Egypt for? That's a no-no. And you'll recall, I think it was all the way back in, in Genesis 26, which is going to take us many months ago, that during a famine, Isaac, Jacob's father, was expressly prohibited from going to Egypt. The Lord said, do not go down to Egypt. Okay, we got famine, check. We got Egypt, check. We got do not go, check. Now, here's this proposition. Joseph is alive. So we can kind of understand Jacob. Not only is he elderly and he has this long journey to make, but this is probably going to be going against the grain of everything that he understands and believes. So God intervenes in verse 2. He speaks to Jacob in visions of the night. He says, Jacob, Jacob, here I am. Verse 3. Then he said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. And I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And listen to this. Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. He heard it from God himself. Joseph is alive. Now, of course, what does Joseph do? He goes down into Egypt. And in verse 11, if we go to chapter 47, verse 11 and 12, and it's really important that we, that we grab this. Verses 11 and 12, chapter 47, verse 11. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now, look at verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt. You see the even flow there? You see how that just flows? Now, the reason I'm taking all this time to point out to you uh, this flow is it'll, it, I, when I have opportunities, I like to share with you how I study the Bible in order to help you study the Bible. Last week's passage was verses 13 through 26, right? Now, I've already shown that we have a flow of thought going from verses 11 and 12 to verse 27. If you take 13 and 26 out, you see how that flows just beautifully. There's a flow of thought there. But within that flow of thought, there are these verses 13 through 26. Now, I'll give you a couple of technical words. You don't need to remember the technical words, but some of us like these technical words. What we have here is what's known as an inclusio. 
An inclusio, and the best illustration I've heard of an inclusio is book, bookends. Imagine a shelf. You got some books. You got a bookend on this side. You got a bookend on this side. All right. Verses 11 and 12 are one bookend. Verses 27, verse 27 is the other bookend. Within, within those bookends is one coherent unit of thought, which sometimes we call pericope if you're interested in that technical term. It's one coherent uh, f- uh, flow of thought, if you will. Now, that's why I preached last week from verses 13 to 26. That was the rationale. We have one flow of thought. Okay, with all of that aside, let's ask this question. This is why it's important. What is the Holy Spirit up to? Why, why do we have, for example, chapters 45, 46, and 47? And why, why do we have this interruption at verse, tw- uh, verse 12, the end of verse 12, this interruption? Well, let's think it through. What is this interruption about? That was last week's message, verse 13. There was no food in the land. Let's think about it. There's no food in the land. Okay, Jacob, come on down to Egypt. There's no food here. There's no food in the land. For the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of famine. Now, we're told that, verse 15, the uh, Egyptian countrymen uh, have spent all their money on food, so they've lost all their money, right? They've spent all the money. Um, They've spent it all. Now, we know that there's somewhere probably between year two and three of the famine. We know that just from what we've read. They're probably between two years two and three in the famine. So these people have been spending their savings for the last couple years. Their savings is gone. Okay, they can no longer buy food. So Joseph agrees to take their livestock for food. So perhaps in years, for, for year, from year two and a half to three and a half, they spend their livestock. I'm guessing. Okay, when that year is over, what have they got left? Well, they make a proposition to Joseph in verse 19. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us in our land for food, and we will, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. So, what is going on there? All they got left is their land. So they exchanged their land for food, and they exchanged their freedom, if you will, for food. Okay, this little interruption that we have in the flow of thought. What does it concern? It concerns the countrymen of Egypt. What is happening to the countrymen of Egypt? Well, they're losing all their money. They've lost all their money. They've lost their livestock. They've lost their land. And really, they've lost their freedom, haven't they? We looked at that in some detail last week. And then we come to verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it. You see that? how that just hits you in the face, doesn't it? We got loss, 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 gained possessions. They gained possessions, and they were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly. Now, what is the Holy Spirit up to here? Obviously, a contrast is being set up between the loss of the Egyptian countrymen 
and the gain of God's people. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about prosperity. You know, sometimes, I, I, I would admit over the years, I have hesitated to talk about prosperity because of all of the abuses of prosperity in the church for I don't know how long. I don't know how many. Now probably a couple generations. You know, there's lots of names for it. You know, you have your health, wealth, and prosperity. Gospel is probably the best known uh, name for it where you have, uh, and I don't even want to call these guys preachers, uh, these men and women. I don't want to call them preachers uh, because this isn't the Word of God that they're preaching. Uh, where they say, listen, God, and I've had people tell me this. I've had people tell me exactly this. God doesn't want anyone sick. Has anybody ever told you that? Has anybody ever said to you with like, great conviction that God doesn't want anyone sick? That's been said to me. I've also been, and Tammy and I both together have been at the bedside of people who are dying, believing that they have lost their faith because they weren't healed. You know, it's so cruel that when people need their faith to be strengthened the most in that hour where they're going through perhaps the most difficult trial of their entire life, their faith is stripped right out from and under them by a false gospel. I have no patience for a gospel like that. That is another gospel. And the condemnation of Galatians 1, 8, and 9, I think fall on that. You know, let them be accursed that preach that business. It is deadly, it is dangerous, it is awful. People who are thinkers, you know, when I was going to seminary, I worked at a large music store in Pittsburgh, one of the prominent music stores in Pittsburgh. I worked as a technician. You know, I was fixing all this. It was, it was, a, fun, it was a fun job, actually. Uh, but the owners, I don't want to mention their names, but one of the owners, I talked quite a bit about, about Jesus, and he used to call me a Jesus guy. He said, you're a Jesus guy. I'm like, yeah, I'm a Jesus guy. I'll be a Jesus guy. Well, he was a thinker, and he was looking at this nonsense. You know, he's on television. He's watching these preachers, and he mentioned one. He goes, what's that guy who's smiling all the time? What's his story? I didn't, need it. I didn't need him to tell me who that was. He goes, if that isn't as phony as can be, I've never seen anything as phony as can be. Life isn't a smile. Life is not always a smile. He goes, I smile sometimes. A lot of times I don't smile. And what are you supposed to say to that? Tell you what I said to that. I said that guy's a farce, and you're calling him. You're calling him 100 right. You'll never hear the gospel from that place. I had a seminary professor that said if you went into that place and you preached the gospel, you'd clear all but the front row. I hardly never said anything in seminary. I sat there. I wasn't there to run my mouth. I was there to learn. I hardly never said anything, but I couldn't contain myself. Like Joseph announcing himself to his brothers, it just come right out of my mouth. I said, "I'll take the front row. Give it to me. I'll take it." It's probably 500 people in that front row. That sounds great. Where are the other 40,000? Where are the other 40,000? See, the people that are thinking, the thinking people, people who aren't just skating on the surface of life, people who are actually looking at life trying to figure it out, they're looking at all this, and they're saying, if that's Christianity, that's just nonsense. And you know what? They're coming to the right conclusion. He was coming to the right conclusion. If he could have turned on his television and heard the actual gospel, then he could have been free to receive the gospel or, or to reject the gospel. But he wasn't hearing the gospel. 
He was hearing more about what this preacher's granddaddy used to tell him than about the Scriptures themselves. Listen, if a man doesn't do the hard work of expositing the Bible, he is no preacher. Don't listen to him. Because if I don't teach, and that includes myself, if I don't teach what's in this book, then what am I teaching? If I'm not teaching God's Word, then whose Word am I teaching? It may be mine. It may be some other man's or some woman's, but it's not God's. And why should my opinion matter any more than yours? Amen? As you can tell, I get a little bent about that stuff. And I think all of us should get bent. You know, just on the side, when I was doing counseling up at the counseling center uh, years ago, one thing I noticed and observed by some of the couples that I was doing marital counseling with is how often people get mad when they shouldn't be mad and they don't get mad when they should. This is a time when we should be mad. This should, this should anger us. This should irk us. This should irk us to no end, uh, this kind of business. God doesn't want anybody to be sick. He doesn't want anyone to be poor. And they'll look at a passage like this and they'll say, see what? You just made my case. In the midst of the Egyptian countrymen, they're losing everything, but God's people, no, they're prospering in the midst of this. See this? This is what I've been telling you. Now, I doubt that any of those charlatans would bother to even go through all the verses I just went through because I don't even think they bother because I don't even think they care because I, obviously they have no respect for the book or they would teach it, wouldn't they? They have some other agenda, some other agenda. So they'd probably just go to verse 27 and say, look, Israel settled in Egypt, land of Goshen, they gained possessions. See there? God wants, doesn't want any of his kids to be, to be poor. He wants them all to be rich. Well, what's going on in this text? Are they gaining possessions in it? Well, they are. Are these material possessions? Yes. And if all we want to do is skate on the surface, if we're just going to want to skate on the surface of Scripture, that might be enough for us. But is that any way to receive the Word of God, to skate on the surface of it? Is that really appreciating the Bible for what it is? Is that appreciating me? I mean, if, if you know, it's so funny today. Everybody wants to hear a word from God, you know. Everybody's going on about a word from God. They have no regard for the Bible, but there's always some guy. You know, there's always a guy, you know. And this guy is prophesied. He said something. And, and they're, they're, they're just so in tune with that nonsense. Even though the collection of them all... Well, they're ready to admit that 80% of these prophecies that this guy or these other guys are saying are bogus. Nevertheless, they're still in tune with what these guys are saying. You try to talk to them. Hey, we're having a Bible study you know, on Sunday mornings. We're going through Genesis. Oh, Genesis is not relevant to us today. Someone told me that. I think it was Tammy. Don't be a friend of yours. What, what are you going to gain out of Genesis? There's nothing in Genesis to be gained. Nothing in Genesis to be gained. If we didn't have Genesis, how would we even understand the mess we're in? Could we make any sense of the mess that we're in if we didn't have Genesis 1, 2, and 3? Nothing to do. See, there's no interest. You have to understand something. Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light, and so do his people. They can look like the real deal all the way down to where we can't even hardly tell the difference. But when they make statements like that, I question their salvation. I question whether the Holy Spirit is really working in their lives. I question it. I question it big time because what is one of the first things the Holy Spirit does when He works in our lives? 
he opens up our eyes. If he doesn't open up your eyes, then you're going to have no interest in this. But he opens up our eyes so that we can see, so that we can hear. And what does he show us? He convicts us of our sins. There's no reason to reach out for a Savior unless you're convicted that you need one. I was trying to make this case one time with a businessman over in, uh, well, where, where does it matter? I don't want to give up his identity. He lo- well, was a local man. He's now passed away. But I was trying to make this case for him. And I said to him, I said, listen, you're so lost that you don't even realize you're lost. And just as I said that, there was a boat going by. Someone was pulling a boat on a trailer, and there was a life preserver on the, on the, on the back of that boat. I said, why don't you reach out and grab that life preserver? He went, what? I said, why don't you reach out and grab that life preserver? That's because you're not drowning, right? But if you were drowning, that would be the most beautiful thing you could grab, would it not? I'm here to tell you, you're drowning, man. And you're drowning so bad you don't even know you're drowning. That's all the further that conversation went. Didn't go any further than that. But see, when the Holy Spirit operates in our hearts, one of the first things that He does is He opens up and convicts us of our sins. Some are convicted more deeply than others, but all are convicted. Because if you don't have no conviction of sin, you don't need a Savior. People aren't coming to Jesus in droves because people are not convicted of their sins. I'm not that bad. Come on. One of the things that this gentleman actually said to me one day, because you must really think I'm some big-time sinner. And to that I affirmed, yeah, I actually do. I do think you're a big-time sinner. But listen, I think you're a big-time sinner because I also, I don't think I'm a big-time sinner. I know I am. That's when the conversation actually stops. That's one of the first things the Holy Spirit does. And after that, what does He do? He gives two gifts. He gives faith and repentance. We're going to talk about that in a couple minutes. People that march to these beats, to the beats of the drum, you have to ask the question, have they really received the Holy Spirit? Have they really received the Holy Spirit? We can't answer it conclusively. I'm not saying that we should, but let's ask ourselves the question. Back to our text. Israel settled in the land of Egypt, verse 27, in the land of Goshen. They gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Now, let's, just as there is a context before that verse, let us also be aware that there's a context that follows that verse. The context isn't just what comes before something. The context also includes what comes after it. Now, if we're going to say, hey, see there, God doesn't, God doesn't want any of His children to be poor. Okay, all right. Well, let's read on. Let's look at a little bit more here. Verse 28, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. Just by the way, on the side, that's such a beautiful verse because how long did, how long did Jacob go without Joseph? How many years did Jacob believe Joseph was dead 17 years. And how many years did Jacob live in Egypt after he was reunited with Joseph? 17 years. I don't think that's an accident. Do you? That's the goodness of our God. But what is it pointing to? It's pointing to really the significant... It's pointing to what comes next throughout the rest of Genesis. Verse 29, when the time drew near that Israel must die. That is a pivotal verse in understanding how the flow of this text is going. And in fact, what is unique about this is oftentimes when patriarchs die, for the most time, we get a paragraph maybe or a sentence or two. But in Genesis, 
surrounding Jacob's life, we actually get the end of chapter 47, 48, 49, and 50. All of this material is around the circumstances of Jacob's death. So do you think Jacob's death is part of the context here? It's a no-brainer. The time drew near that Israel must die. Now, before we get to that, let's look just a little further. Jacob calls his son Joseph. He says to him, if I found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh, promise to deal kindly and truly with me, do not bury me in Egypt. Let me lie with my fathers. And notice how emphatic, I mean, he's not just, he's not just saying, you know, Joseph, please promise me you won't, believe, you won't bury me in Egypt. No, he's making him swear by an oath. He says in verse 31, swear to me. Put your hand under my thigh. You see, that's what Abraham asked his servant to do whenever he set his servant up to find uh, a wife for Isaac. Put your hand under my thigh. This is serious. This is solemn. Listen, I don't want, do not bury me in Egypt. Why is that so important to Jacob? Because Jacob's eyes are on the promise. His eyes are are on the promise. And we could spend all morning just talking about this, actually, but I'll abbreviate it this morning. We see his eyes are on the promise. What does that teach us? That teaches us that Jacob is a man of faith. Okay, possessions are being gained in the, in the land, but is that what Jacob has his eyes on? Very clearly not. Listen, if the Lord has blessed us, if he has blessed us with a home, a nice home, that's wonderful. Let's praise God for that if we've been blessed with that. If he's blessed us with a little bit of money in the bank, let's praise him for that. If he's blessed us with success in the workplace and success in our vocation, success in our marriage, let's praise him for that. But let's understand that this, these blessings are at the very bottom of the list of God's blessings. They're at the very bottom. I'll say, well, how can, you, how can you say that, Rick? Well, let me, just, let, me just, let me just put it this way. How many of the most wicked people who have ever walked this planet have walked with perfect health? How many of them have been wealthy? How many of them have been successful in what they do? You see, these are common blessings that the Lord doesn't just give to His children. They're blessings that God has been pleased to give to some of the most wicked people who have ever graced this planet. These are the bottom. It's the bottom. You know, these, these preachers that preach this wealth and health prosperity, you know what they are? They're bottom feeders. Because what they want, why are they doing it? It seems that some of them are flying around in jets. Some of them are, I mean, some of them... I read a story where one actually gave a Bentley, a Bentley to one of their other friends. You think of the wealth that some of these people have amassed. What are they into? They're into this wealth. What are they? They're bottom feeders. They're bottom feeders is what they are. They're feeding on the bottom. Their hearts, they're into what's on the bottom. They don't care what kind of damage they're doing to people and souls. This nonsense has been imported all over the world. They're going in, they prey on the poor, they prey on the desolate, they prey on people people who are desperate, people who are having all kinds of problems and they prey on them and the damage that they do. A bunch of bottom feeders is what they are. These are the lowest, they're the lowest of blessings. Yes, 
They were fruitful and they multiplied. But they did so because God promised that they would. Look back to chapter 46, verse 3. We just read this verse. God intervenes with Jacob. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. I'm with you. There I'm going to make you into a great nation. God had promised he was going to do this. And when we come to this verse, the issue isn't, hey, God doesn't want any of his people to be poor. The issue is God is making good on his promise. That's what's being taught by that verse. And besides that, where does material prosperity fit in the food chain? It's at the very bottom. Is it a blessing? Yeah. But it's at the bottom. How can we say it's at the bottom? Let's think it through. Jacob says to Joseph, please do not bury me in Egypt. Don't bury me in Egypt. Why? Because of the eyes of faith. He's looking to the promise. But let's go a little further. We could spend all morning on this because let's look a little further. Jacob knows that the time for him has come to die. The time has come to die. And what is Jacob doing? I want to be buried in the promised land. Why does he want to be buried in the promised land? Because he's looking with the eyes of faith to the promise. Does this sound like the Jacob that we met way back uh, many, many chapters ago? Does this, sound like the, does this sound like the Jacob that swindled his brother out of his birthright? Does this sound like the Jacob that's, that stood right before his father dressed in his brother's clothes and lied right to his blind father's faith saying that I am, that I am Esau? Does this sound like the same man? No, this is a man who has received a much greater blessing than material possessions. He's received the blessing of faith, and repentance. If you've received, faith and repentance are two different things, but if you've received saving faith, you've also received repentance. If you haven't received repentance, you haven't received saving faith. These are, twi- they're, they're distinct from one another, but they're never separate from one another. If you receive saving faith, you receive repentance. Jacob's heart's no longer on working up the corporate ladder. His heart is on the promises of God. And I would submit to you that this is a greater blessing. And it's a blessing that those charlatans cannot give to anyone. It's a greater blessing. And you see, it's a blessing that only the Holy Spirit can give. There's a lot of ministry going on in the United States that's nothing more than man-made ministry. It's man methodology. It's man-made. It's man everything. And you know what? The product of it is going to be just like everything else we produced. It's going to be burned in fire. There's going to be no eternal value to it whatsoever. We can have no interest in that. We must have no interest in that. The only kind of ministry that we must be interested in is that which is wrought by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit ministry. The Holy Spirit can open up your eyes. The Holy Spirit can give you faith to embrace Jesus. The Holy Spirit can turn your life that's upside down right side up and give you the gift of repentance. If we have faith in Christ Jesus this morning and we have repented of our sins, meaning we've turned away, we've turned our back on walking in the ways and patterns of this world, doesn't mean we're perfect. It's not about perfection. It's about the direction that we're walking in. One popular preacher puts it that way. It's not about about perfection. It's about direction. That's really good. But have you been changed? Have you been, have you been turned that 180 degrees? Have you been turned that 180 degrees? Many of the people that are in those kinds of churches, you talk to them, and some of you talk to them, and you know what I'm talking about. You talk to them about studying the Bible or something, and their eyes kind of glass over, and they're not interested. If you talk to them about seven ways to improve their marriage, they're all ears. 
But you talk to them about the Bible, they're not that interested in the Bible. I'll give you one illustration of this. When I was doing, when we were just walking around, we were just starting this ministry, we were walking around, we were walking around Chester, we were walking around East Liverpool, we were walking about, we were talking to people about their faith. We met Tina doing that. As we were walking around, just talking to people about our faith, we went into McDonald's. This friend of mine was from Pittsburgh, he didn't know anybody around here, and there was a man in McDonald's. And I saw my friend go up to him, and I was like, oh, this is great. This is going to be wonderful, because we talked to so many people that day that kind of rejected the gospel. I said, this is going to be great, because Tammy had told me that this guy had come to faith. Uh, she had heard through the grapevine that he'd come to faith. After many years of not being in the faith, he had come to the faith. And I thought, this is going to be great. My friend's going to get to talk to somebody who's a believer. So my friend goes up to him, and he was really funny. He said, hey, how are you guys uh, keeping them commandments? You keeping all them commandments? And he started talking to him, and he was charming enough, and, and he basically started to go into a basic gospel presentation with this man that supposedly come to faith. And within about two minutes, that man was looking at my friend with a lip that was quivering on his left side because he was so irritated with what he was hearing. Does that sound like a man that we should say, hey, welcome to the group? Does that, does that sound like someone that we should say, hey, I'm so thankful that God has brought you into the fold? It was a basic gospel, basic gospel presentation. And you could see by his face that he was rejecting it. He couldn't stand it. He wanted my friend to leave him alone. Now, my guess is that if any of you heard a gospel presentation in McDonald's like that, you'd be delighted that somebody's out sharing the gospel. I heard an old, old story. Or I love to tell the story. Do you love to hear the story? Do you love to hear the gospel? That's one of the marks of a person who is in the fold. Hatred to hear the What is hatred to hear the gospel? That's the marks of someone who is still in the world, whose eyes have not been opened, whose ears have not been unstopped. And they're sitting in these ministries and they're being told, these people are being told that they're in Christ. Now, what could be more soul-damning than that? There's no reason to look any further. I'm here. There's no reason to do anything else. I'm here. Faith and repentance are much greater gift than any amount of material prosperity. But let's look at this a little further. We can look at this even further. Notice that the time drew near that Israel must die. Notice the time. There's a time. There's a, there's a calendar. And there's, there's, a, there's a, you know, you got, a, you got a little box for each day. And for every one of us, there's a date. There's a time. There's a time to be born. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time to be born and there's a time to die. And David says in Psalm 139 that all the days uh, that were written in God's book for him uh, all of those days were written before one of them began. There's a date. We all have a date. Now, what is Jacob up to? He wants to be buried in Egypt. Why does he care? Or buried in Canaan. He doesn't want to be buried in Egypt. Why does he care? He plans on having victory over death. Why is he embracing a promise if he's about to die? Unless he believes that beyond the doorway of death, he's going to receive that promise. We could make a case for the saints believing in the resurrection from this text. 
You see, if all we're going to do with this text is say, look, uh, God doesn't want anybody to be, anybody to be poor. You, you know, you're going, to come to, you're going to come to nonsense like that when you've got something as golden as this. What does Jacob believe in? Jacob obviously believes in the resurrection. I want to be buried in the promised land. Why is that so important? Because it's the promise of God, because there's more to life than this. I'm going to go through that doorway, and that's where the promises are going to be. They're obviously not in this life. They await beyond the doorway of death. Now, you reason with me for a minute. You tell me, what is the greater blessing? Material prosperity or victory over death? God gives material prosperity to really all kinds of people, people who love the Lord, people who don't love the Lord. But he does not give victory over death to anyone but his children. These are the greater blessings. Faith and repentance, victory over death. How about justification? All of us know that a day of reckoning is coming. I mean, God hasn't removed that from our minds. We know, you know, the author to the letter of Hebrews, in Hebrews 9 verse 27 says that it's given for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment, right? We know that. Instinctively, we know. We're not shocked by that verse. Has anyone ever been shocked by that verse? You're not shocked by that verse. Why? Because instinctively, we all know that that's going to happen. But we push it off so far into the recesses of our minds that in our fallenness, we act as if it isn't going to ever happen. And we can even make statements like, we don't believe God exists. I don't really believe God exists. Oh, come on. Paul tells us very clearly that everybody knows that God exists because we can look out and see by what's been made. Tammy and I were talking about, you know, I started the conversation by talking about, you know, there's a, a series that I want to do on Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and I'm going to have to start working on it because one of these days I want to start teaching it so our youngsters can start hearing it so they'll be prepared for university because there's, you know, and, and as I think about that, you know, there's a popular, a popular term called intelligent design. We've all heard about intelligent design. I hate that term, actually. Do you like that term, intelligent design? Well, I mean... Let's think about what is the point of intelligent design? I mean, could the world been unintelligibly designed? Could it have been designed by a buffoon? Could a buffoon design the many of you are in the medical field? Could a buffoon design the protein cell? We don't even understand the protein cell from what I understand. How about the mind? How about the brain? And that's just one little speck of this great of this great universe. Intelligent design? You have, to be, you have to be a buffoon, do you not? Intelligent design? God designed it. But see, we want to push God out. We want to push him away. Why do we want to push him away? Because he's going to remind us of the evil that we dwell in. Jesus said this is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but people rejected the light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Justification. How are we going to stand in that day? There's a date on the calendar that you can't change. We're 24 hours closer to it today than we were yesterday. We're one year closer to it than we were uh, 365 days ago. There's a date. We can't change it. How are we going to stand in God's court? You tell me. Well, uh, Pastor, it's because Jesus went to the cross. Yeah. What did he do on the cross? Well, he, he died on the cross, and while he was on the cross, the sins of his people were put on him, and he suffered the agony 
and the wrath of God in their place. Yeah, and, and, and um, his righteousness was then imputed to all who believe in him by faith so that they were clothed. Yeah, and on the third day he rose again, which proves the whole thing is correct. And then he ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty where he is dressed in absolute sovereignty and he is Lord and our knees are going to bow before him. That's correct. How in the world are we going to stand there? We're only going to stand there by the graciousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way we're going to stand there. You tell me, what is a greater blessing? Temporary, material blessings here in Mooswer or being able to stand in God's court? Temporary blessings that we're eventually going to have to let go of. Temporary health, which is eventually going to fail. Temporary success, which is eventually going to elude us. You know, I love playing guitar, but my arthritis is now coming to the point where it's, it's just never going to be like it once was. No matter how successful you are, whatever, you're going to, there's going to come a day where you're just not going to be able to do the things you used to do. You tell me, what is a greater blessing? Material prosperity, success, health, which is going to be here today, gone tomorrow, like the grass of the field, or justification. But it even gets better than that. Why are we justified? If we could be justified just so we could get into heaven and escape the wrath of hell and be put over in a corner somewhere or even in a closet, that would be great, wouldn't it? You've got a closet somewhere you can shove me in. That's great. I'll go in the closet. But now there's this promise. It's more than a promise. There's this doctrine known as adoption. Adoption. What is Adoption. Adoption is where God, after he justifies you, he actually adopts you as his daughter, adopts you as his son. And God, we're told, James tells us, he shows no partiality. What's that mean? He's not like Jacob who favors Joseph over, uh, over the rest of the brothers. God's never going to favor one of us over the other. He's never going to favor me more than you. Oh, Rick was a preacher. He's going to favor Rick more than... No, he won't. He's not going to favor me any more than he's going to favor any one of you. What does that mean? It means he's going to favor us all the same. What does it mean? He's going to favor us intensely and perfectly. You are a child if you're in Christ. You are a son or a daughter of God. Now, you tell me, what is more valuable? Temporary, material, prosperity, and success, and health, or adoption as a son and daughter of Righteousness. People I talk to, they're not interested in the Bible. If they're not interested in the Bible, they're also not interested in walking in holiness. They're not interested in righteousness. Who's interested in righteousness? Only the ones who the Holy Spirit. I wasn't interested in righteousness until the Holy Spirit began to do His work in my life. Opened up my eyes to see how filthy my sin is. Sin is filthy. It's disgusting. Flee from it. I used to delight in it. Flee from it. One of the most painful things for us now is that there's still this remnant of our hearts that we hate to admit it, but there's still a remnant of our hearts that still delight in it, isn't there? But yet the Lord keeps showing us, the Holy Spirit keeps teaching us and teaching us and teaching us and teaching us how filthy and what a stench sin is. Holiness. You wake up in the morning and you say, boy, today I just want to walk in righteousness. I really want to be Christ-like today. I want to go to the workplace. I want to be Christ-like. I want to walk through whatever I've got to do today. I want to be Christ-like. That is not on your mind if the Holy Spirit is not in your heart. 
that is not on your mind. But you tell me, what a wonderful blessing. What a wonderful blessing to be so transformed. This speaks of regeneration. This speaks of God changing our hearts. You tell me, what is a greater blessing, material prosperity or a changed heart, a changed life, a life that loves Christ's likeness and wants to walk like Jesus and be pleasing to the Father and, and, and walk in a way that's glorifying to the Father? I have a couple more. These ones are tough. But I would submit that loss, sacrifice, self-denial must be on this list too. Say what? Um, I'll repeat. Loss, sacrifice, and self-denial. Uh, did you change lists? No, same list. Um, it's on the same list as faith and repentance, victory over death, justification, holiness, righteousness, adoption, uh, loss, sacrifice, self-denial. It's almost like one of those puzzles, like when you're a kid and they got these puzzles and they say, okay, show which one doesn't belong to the category and you have to check a box. Well, I think we're going to check three boxes. Loss, sacrifice, self-denial. Don't belong to the category. Yes, it does. Well, how? It's in our text. It's actually in the context. Who is in our text? Jacob is in our text. Who else is in our text? Joseph. Joseph. What's Joseph's story? Well, if we're going to date, if we're going to go with the date when... Let's go with the date of our text. Jacob's 147 years old. 34 years ago, Joseph suffered a tremendous loss where his brothers sold him into slavery and he was taken away from his family. So his freedom to be able to enjoy fellowship with his father, fellowship with his brothers, fellowship with his family was taken away from him, stripped from him. He was put in a, in a traveling jail cell and he was carted off to Egypt where he was sold to Potiphar, right? And things were going fairly well, about as best as could be expected, when he suffered another loss. He was falsely accused of forcing himself upon Potiphar's wife. Now he loses reputation. Now he's in jail where he has even less freedom. Now, how does Joseph conduct himself through all of that loss? Does he get bitter? I've brought this out a number of times. Does he get bitter? Is he like the guy, you know, that's got that big chip on his shoulder who's angry at everything and he's resentful? And Is he one of those guys? No, he's beautiful. No. Is he mad? Is he angry? No. Why? Because in the midst of the loss and in the midst of the sacrifice and in the midst of the self-denial, God is working in Joseph more than he ever would have worked in Joseph if he had put him in a big house on the hill and put a white picket fence around it. Not that there's anything wrong with it. I'm not condemning a house on the hill. I own a house that's on a hill. I like it. It's a brick ranch. I pulled in the driveway for two years just looking up at it with unbelief that I owned it. I'm very thankful for it. But God has done more work in Joseph's heart and life through the loss, sacrifice, and self-denial than he ever would have done had these things not happened. God had to prepare Joseph to be guru number two in Egypt. You, you get the sense of it? Now, I'm going to close with this last sentence. These great blessings... Faith and repentance, victory over death, justification, holiness, righteousness, adoption, loss, sacrifice, self-denial. These great blessings can flourish even as our health is taken away. You see, the, 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 the charlatans, they have you believe if your health is taken away, 
that it's a breach of faith. What a, what a, what a debilitating doctrine that is. No, no, the gospel tells us something altogether different. The gospel tells us that we can flourish as our health is being taken away. A couple of us have had some things happen in our lives which have rendered us in a way that we're changed now. Okay, it's not going to be the same. Okay, our health is not what it once was. That's in part why I'm using this application. Because I have the glorious privilege of telling you that you can flourish as your health is fading away. And in fact, possibly the greatest season of prosperity, spiritual prosperity, will probably happen right now. Right now. What does Habakkuk say? What did Habakkuk say? Does anybody remember? Page 787. Oh, he sure sums up. He sure sums up this message. Page 787. If you're using the church's Bible. If you're not, I'll give time to go find it. I want everybody to find it. Habakkuk. Look in your table of contents and you'll find it. We'll wait on it. The back of chapter 3, verses 17, 18, and 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's, and He makes me tread on my high places. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a beautiful gospel melody Habakkuk gives to us to close our time together this morning. Father, we hear this beautiful melody reverberate and echo down through the chambers of our hearts, Father, and our hearts are filled with joy to know that though our material goods can be taken away, our freedom can be taken away, our homes can be taken away, our health can be taken away, our success can be taken away. But even in the midst of all of this loss, You are our strength and we will flourish. Oh, Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.